Good evening. Good to be here with you once again. Uh, the scripture reading tonight is 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 11. 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. I'm really only going to focus fairly tightly in on verse 7, but I want to give you a little bit wider context here. Uh, Peter is writing to what he refers to as elect exiles, uh, Christians who are scattered around uh, the known world in their area and um, dealing with difficult times. And um, let's jump in now to chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7 that introduces this small section of 1 Peter 4 says, The end of all things is near, therefore we're to be alert and sober-minded for prayer. For prayer. Um, I don't know about you, but when I hear the words, the end is near, I still get this picture of, you know, kind of someone fairly disheveled, and I, I, being a downtown pastor, this is not uh, just remembering a couple weeks, you know, just like years ago. This, this is a couple weeks ago, you know, someone carrying a, a, an end is near sign, disheveled, kind of ranting and raving, uh, and you look at that and go, whoa, what do we, what do, we do with that? You know, this wild-eyed guy, it's a bit unsettling. Yet I don't know about you, but the last couple of years has changed my mind a little bit about some of this, because when I read these words now, there's something here that in my 20s as a Christian, I didn't understand that I'm pushing a lot more deeply into. When in my 20s, you know, the end is near, seemed like that's a long ways off and for someone else, whereas a pandemic and a war going on that could very easily explode has changed that to, oh my goodness, the end is near. And this has caused me to something as a believer, to be alert, to be sober-minded for prayer. There's something about when difficult things come into our lives, whether it is personal or whether it is something more on a global scale that connects us deeply to the truth of what Peter is telling us here. A pandemic, war, discord in your lives. Connect us to the reality that we are exiles. That as Christians called by God, we live here, but our true home, our heart home, our eternal home is somewhere else. We are actually displaced persons. And I use that intentionally at the moment because it's not just Ukrainians and Afghanis and others who are displaced persons. The truth that Scripture gives is that every Christian is actually a displaced person. Our heart home is actually in heaven. Our heart home belongs to God. And when he returns, we will truly be home. 
which means there's an element here of which that uh, we, we always feel somewhat unsettled as Christians in our context, whether the world is going better than it's ever gone before or whether it's like it is at the moment, as it has been through many, many times in history. We are displaced persons who long for home, who long to see Jesus face to face because the end of things is near and it calls our hearts to something. Peter is putting present life and sufferings in light of eternal reality here. He's putting it in the light of actually what we confessed. In fact, some of the words of these creeds come from right before that. He's reminding us that we set our present realities with its joys, with its fears, and with its tears in the midst of the reality is that Christ has risen and Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. We live into this expectation of this second coming of Christ, but Peter is here telling us as an apostle that this reality calls us to some priorities. One of them, the first one in this section here, is the priority of being alert, sober-minded for prayer. When I heard about Ukraine, I was actually on a prayer retreat with my wife and another couple Sitting there by myself, everyone else had gone to bed. I was uh, reflecting. I was doing a little bit of prayer before bed and going, you know, just, you know, getting ready for this. And all of a sudden, my phone explodes with all the notices. You know, and it wasn't ex unexpected, of course. But at the same time, that, un that unsettled feeling came into my heart. Like, oh my goodness. When I was in my 20s, if this would have happened, I'd have gone, wow, this is, this is a bit unsettling. But now that I've got kids that are getting close to military age, it's changed my perspective even on a, on a much more radical level. But Peter is telling us to be self-controlled, alert, to be, have clear thinking here regarding the end of all things, and it's calling us to move to prayer. First, I want us to look at that we're called to look at eternal realities, not merely external realities. Peter, throughout the book, is really pointing to is that there's all kind of external realities going on in these people's lives, just like there is in ours. Things that are difficult, things that are trying, places that they're suffering, places that they feel tension with the culture that they live in. They're called to do good, even while at times... People would accuse them of other things. They're having to wrestle through what does it mean to live and think and pray like a Christian in the midst of a situation like this. But they're not called to be merely swayed by the external realities around them. They're to have an, an eternal focus in their lives. As Keller puts it, they're to be in touch with ultimate reality. Seeing things as they really are not merely as the newscasts put them, not merely as others speak of them. This requires a biblical gospel lens for our lives and of the events that we face for ourselves. What Peter is saying here 
is it's actually crazy to live as if there's no coming judgment, as if there's no coming judgment of the living and the dead, as if Jesus wouldn't return, as if there isn't someone bigger and more sovereign actually in charge of all of this. Sober, alert thinking actually calls us to have a clear thinking in light of the eternal realities of, that we live in. That we're actually not afraid of a judgment because we are eternally loved and accepted by a God who gave his one and only son for us. And that despite the mess of the world that we live in, he actually holds it in his hands and is moving it towards his eternal plans and purposes. And it calls us now to always live in light of this reality, think in light of this reality as well, rather than just look at our cultural moment and take it in for what others tell us how we should look and think about it. It's good to study cultural movements and moments, the good and the bad of them, but we are called to think much more deeply that, as Peter says, about the eternal reality here, putting these events against the backdrop of eternal reality. If we're going to do that, then, Peter says this moves us to something. It moves us to prayer. Being alert, being sober-minded here is to lead us to prayer. It is for prayer. Not merely for other things, because prayer offers prophetic hope to our souls. It offers prophetic hope, praying for our present in light of the future, in light of the kingdom of God, in light of the reality that Jesus is Lord and he was crucified and raised again, and then he is coming again to set the world right and to renew all things. It means that prayer is actually the most rational response that you can give in that moment. Not merely feeling the fear, not merely trying to put our lives and order them all together, prayer is actually the first response in these kinds of moments when our world is falling apart. Prayer elevates us above our present fears and difficulties. These trials that we face in moments like these either drive you from God and others, or they call you to engage God and others in prayer, in deep relationship, in crying out to Him. This means that we can't just wait to pray when we think we need it that prayer muscle will be weak and flabby. It calls for us to develop it now, to be at the practice of prayer as Jesus taught us to, so that when these moments come and they're here, that it is our natural reflex of the soul to bring these things into the presence of God. Our laments, our tears, our fears, knowing that it will lead us to trust more deeply in the God of the universe. Daniel was someone who had this kind of prayer life that's a model for us here. When his world was falling apart and it seemed to come regularly to him, think of Daniel and the lion's dead. The, the reason that they could get him on the hook and try him at all 
was not because he was doing something wrong. They actually had to create a special law because he was doing something right. He was so righteous, and his life reflected so the good that Peter is talking about here in the wider context of this, that they had to create a new law just for him and to deal with this guy that was bothering them. The the way to resist cultural captivity here and the pressure to be shaped into the culture's mold, mold is to develop a prayer life that is rich and full that is deeply embedded in Scripture, reflecting on what God says to to us, reflecting on hearing His voice, voice that He is speaking to us, and then crying out to Him. Daniel was so in the habit of prayer that even when it was outlawed, his private prayer life now became public news, and he continued to pray three times a day, even in the face of existential threats. John Smed says in his book, Prayer Revolution, rather than conform to the powers that be, Christians pray. Even as we pray for the existing order, as we follow Paul's guidance, we pray for a new order to be revealed. We're praying in light of the end. We're praying, God, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's praying that, God, would you do something that we cannot do as human beings? Would you order the world as you plan it? And would it lead us to repentance, to faith, to prayer, and to care for our city and the people around us here? For Daniel, it saw him delivered miraculously. And the incredible thing is some of the very people that looked at him and thought he was crazy, ended up glorifying God publicly. The king himself, in his prayer, glorified God in Daniel's witness. Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane focused on the Father and his will, his glory, and his end goal here, and laid it down. And in that darkest hour, he called on Peter and the other disciples to join him in prayer. I often wondered when I look back on this particular verse, if Peter isn't looking at some of those moments and saying, you know what, Jesus called me to pray in that dark hour. And I was not there, I was sleeping. But I want you to do better. I want you to do what I did not do in that moment. We're called to watch and pray, and he's calling us to focus on, and do what he should have done in that moment. To focus on the victory of the cross and our own future experience of glory that Jesus promises us. That in prayer, we would taste of the future and have a vision that is shaped by prayer, shaped by Scripture, because otherwise, it's just our imaginations that are running wild. And we shape a picture of the future apart from God and apart from His glory and His goodness and His grace to us. As we bow our knees, we begin to taste a little bit of the vision of the coming kingdom, even in the midst of dark storms. We just reflect then on just a few kind of practices. How do you begin to implement a prayer life, because I think for many of us, 
Prayer is difficult. We know we should do it. We know we're called to it, but how do we actually begin to implement this into our lives personally as a family and as a, as a corporate community and as a church? First, I'd say develop a prayer plan. We struggle to pray at least in part because we don't plan to pray. The reason that I go to the gym five or six times a week is because the night before I plan and I tell my wife I'm going to the gym. I want some accountability there. She usually comes with me. She's been ill, so she hasn't been able to as much, but I, I plan. I, this is what I'm going to do. When I get up in the morning, my clothes are laid out for that workout, the water bottle's there, the gym pass, I know where that is, and that discipline leads me to actually get up and to do it. That that's my first response in the morning is I'm going to get up, I'm going to work out. Then I come home, eat, and pray, just so you know. That's, that's the way I do it, because if I reverse the order, there's not much prayer going on. It's more looking at the inside of my eyelids. So for me, getting up and getting the blood moving helps me in that. See, but planning for it sets it up as a priority. When I plan for something, I'm saying, this matters, and I need to do it. I actually need to engage in this prayer needs to become a priority, and we need to plan for it. Saints from around, from various traditions, have whether set hours of prayer or times of prayer or days of prayer, however that works for you, make a plan and begin to engage in it. And the reality is some of you go, but yeah, but even when I do it, it feels hard. Well, here's the reality here. Tim Keller says, pray until you begin to pray. He's, he's recounting the Puritans here. It's just like going to the gym. I start working out light until I start working out because I know that I need to warm up a little in order to actually engage in what the work that I know that I am set out to do. We often need to do that in prayer. Spirit, come visit with me. Open the scriptures to me. Open my heart. Open my mind. Open my mouth now that I can begin to commune with you, that I can begin to intercede. I can begin to speak uh, to you and spend time with you. I mean, it's just like getting up and going for a run some days. There's days that I just do ugly runs. At the same time, that ugly run turns into a habit over weeks and months and years. You may feel like, man, that was an ugly prayer, but you know what? Over weeks and months and years, that plan and that priority begins to shape your life. Even in the midst then, when things happen, you're like, this is my response. I've conditioned myself. I've grown that prayer muscle. It's conditioned to know that now my heart needs to respond and cry out to God, even in the midst of suffering. Another thing to do is develop a prayer list to help you bring focus to your prayer. You can do that in all kinds of ways. But one of them that I think is really helpful is begin to collect passages of Scripture that lead you to pray. The Lord's Prayer and its priorities. Much has been written on that. The Psalms, other passages, Paul's prayers that he prays for the churches or asks them to pray for him. I mean, these things begin to be a template for our prayer life that help us to think merely beyond our little scope and view and begin to set our lives in an eternal scope and view and we begin to be given language to cry out to God. 
recognizing he answers. Richard Trent says, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his highest willingness. And you know what he's highly willing to do is answer the prayers that he calls us to give. The ones that he says, pray this way. Prayers modeled on what he says are his priorities to do. So pray scripture. Get into those habits. Finally, develop prayer partnerships. My workouts are easier when I have prayer, a partner, a workout partner, someone that holds me accountable, shows up when I do. That's true, I've discovered in my prayer life as well. A number of people in a number of contexts, these are prayer partners. We've gotten to know each other deeply, care for one another deeply, do, do, do deep work in kingdom work on our knees together. Working together, praying together. Prayer is actually essential in the life and relationship of a community. As we share in prayer together, it actually begins to build a true community. And when we set it in light of eternal realities of Scripture, it begins to shape our entire community, not just us individually. So we pray not only for ourselves, but as we pray for the kingdom of God to come and to advance. Let me leave you with a quote from my former professor, J.I. Packer. He says this, We must learn to measure ourselves not by our knowledge about God, not by our gifts and responsibilities in the church, but how we pray and what goes on in our hearts. Many of us, I suspect, have no idea how impoverished we are at this level. Let us ask the Lord to show us. Would you join with me as we pray? Lord, forgive us for our prayerlessness. Lord, as Peter challenges us to pray in light of the end, may you shape our hearts, impress upon us this reality of who you are, your sovereignty, your kingship, purchased on a cross and at your resurrection, that you are the risen, ascended king. And actually what we join you in doing is you are interceding for us. Would you shape your people and your church as elect exiles as we feel the tension of these moments, the fears of these moments, that we would be shaped by clear thinking about who you are, what you've done, and what the plans and purposes that you are bringing the world to so that we may enter into prayer as you call us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.